I'm April West. And I'm Katherine Sigblad. We're both first-time moms who are passionate about following our intuition and not afraid to do things differently. To say we question everything is an understatement. If you find yourself analyzing ingredient labels, searching for holistic alternatives to pharmaceuticals and routine practices, and you're curious about all things baby wearing, bed sharing, and postpartum, you will feel right at home here. In this podcast, we fearlessly confront the pregnancy, birth, and postpartum industries, share our mom hacks, and never stop challenging the status quo. We simplify the approach to motherhood and trust in nature. We are moms off the record. Welcome to another episode of Moms Off the Record. Today is episode four, and it's all about infant sleep. And this is a topic that both Kat and I are extremely passionate about. So a disclaimer to all the moms out there, this can be a rather triggering discussion because we already know that most of us are sleep deprived and there's a boatload of information and your moms and your friends and your sisters are all giving you advice. So This episode is not meant to shame mothers at the decisions you're making, but rather, just like any episode of Moms Off the Record, bringing information to the limelight to help you make a more informed decision, what's best for your baby. Exactly, because we know firsthand as new moms that recovering and healing and adjusting to that new life during postpartum is truly hard enough, even though it's amazing and beautiful at the same time, it's exhausting too. And not to mention doing all of the above while your hormones are on a wild roller coaster Mm -hmm. and you're running on four hours of sleep. And then enter the infant sleep industry and arbitrary rules from social media influencers and sleep trainers and well-intentioned but uninformed friends and family who say, you need to put your baby on a sleeping and feeding schedule. You need to teach your baby how to sleep independently. So April and I are excited to debunk lots of myths, and we're going to share evidence-based safe bed sharing tips, as well as other ways that you can respectfully tune into your baby's cues. Maybe that doesn't look like bed sharing for your family, and that is okay. And we are going to talk about some advice that some of our listeners have shared with us that has backfired and what you might want to consider doing instead. So we're really excited today. Mm-hmm. And we have tons of our own personal experience in in my four months postpartum and your six months postpartum. Happy birthday, Julian. Thank you. <laughs> um, and, you know, we've got some humility to, I've got an anecdote with my sister. And so we're going to get into all of that. And what we always strive to do with Moms Off the Record is find research that might confirm a bias you have, but also might confront that bias. And again, we just want to encourage you to consider all of the studies and the science that you might not be seeing on Instagram or hearing from your mothers or your grandmothers or your aunts or whoever it is that actually tell you to lean in, to listen to your baby and learn from them because they're incredibly intelligent just out of the womb. So let's get started, Kat. I am so thrilled. I know that with our research that we've both done, we've looked at the biology of safe sleep, of bed sharing. So I think that might be an important place for us to start. Would you agree? 
Absolutely. Because I think this is myth number one is that you can teach a baby how to sleep independently. And moreover, we see in Western societies, especially, we need to teach these babies ASAP, right? Like as early as two months, three months. And we've normalized that. So I think biology is important just as an overarching theme here, because biological, you know, safe infant sleep teaches us that you can't train a baby how to sleep. It's not a skill that they learn. They Mm -hmm. co-regulate with their caregivers, right? And so they have to learn how to self-regulate. And that takes time and that looks different for every baby. What do you think? Yes, agreed. So let's go ahead and cite our sources up front just so our listeners can pull out their resources too or look for these books and podcasts and blogs on their own. Um, Kat and I feel, like I said, very passionate about this. So in our notes, we've actually cited the pages of the books that we're pulling from, just so you know that this isn't our you know, homegrown advice, but rather stuff that we've gotten from specialists and PhDs. So my favorite book on this topic is Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering, which I've talked about on previous episodes by Dr. Sarah Buckley. So Sarah Buckley is a GP and a family physician in Australia, and her practice is in obstetrics and family planning. She's also a mother of four home birth children, and she's a PhD candidate as well as writing and lecturing on pregnancy, birth, and parenting. So when we think about a specialist who goes a mile deep, Sarah's where it's at. What's the one you're pulling from? Okay, so my favorite one is Safe Infant Sleep by James McKenna, and he has a PhD. He is the leading expert on mother-infant sleep in the United States. He founded and directed the Mother Baby Behavioral Sleep Laboratory at the University of Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The first of its kind. (laughs) Okay, see, that's where my uh, French major kicks in. There you go. I I, I need to say Notre Dame. The first of its kind to study the physiology and behavior of co-sleeping parents and infants. He has appeared on NBC, CNN, ABC, The Today Show, NPR, and is a global voice on the relationship between bed sharing, breastfeeding, and SIDS, which we're going to talk about next. Yes. And just so you know, Sarah Buckley pulls tons of studies from McKenna in her book. So that's why those wires are crossing. (laughs) So let's talk about it because you said something incredibly important. Sleep is not a skill that we can teach a baby. Also on the same side of that, sleep is not a sign of a baby's misbehavior or deviance, right? So when we think, oh, do you have a good baby? Are they sleeping through the night? Let's scratch that. That's a horrible question to ask because sleep is not an indication of a good baby or a bad baby. It's a biological thing, right? Sleeping through the night is an idea based on a misunderstanding of normal infant sleep and is the source of so much misinformation and suffering from mothers and babies and families because of that. Also, April, you know, I I know lots of adults, I can think of, you know, me included, who don't, quote, sleep through the night, right? Maybe you need to wake up to get a glass of water. Maybe you need to go to the bathroom. Maybe you had a bad dream. Why are we placing such high expectations on these infants to, quote, sleep through the night, these you know, unhealthfully long stretches when adults don't even always sleep through the night, right? A hundred percent. Babies will not follow adult patterns because guess what? They don't have adult brains. Out of all of the mammals out there, human babies only have 25% of their adult brain. 
in terms of functioning capacity, where other mammals out there, by the way, at least have 50%. So if you look at all of us mammals on a spectrum, we're the most immature neurologically. So for us to then try to enforce a sleep schedule to a baby who has a quarter of the brain that we do, it doesn't make any sense. And so that's why I'm so passionate about let's stop trying to tell moms that your baby's really great if they sleep through the night and then they're not great if they don't sleep through the night. Yeah. And I get it because, you know, a lot of times friends and family, they are well-meaning, right? And it can be hard to know the right questions to ask a new mom in postpartum. And I hear it all the time at family gatherings or from friends. And it's like, oh, you know, is he a good baby? Or is she a good baby? Are they sleeping through the night yet? And I do think it's out of just genuine curiosity. If people have a fixation with how many hours babies will sleep in one stretch, it's almost like an obsession. But I think we need to start changing conversations in postpartum and not asking new moms, is your baby sleeping through the night? It, I imagine it's very triggering for moms who have had all-nighters who don't have a baby that's sleeping through. But like you said before, it's not your baby like manipulating you. There's no such thing as your baby being bad or mischievous because they're not sleeping. Yeah. And they don't even have the brain capacity to be mischievous or manipulative. And on the same token, they don't have the brain capacity to self-soothe. So this is a topic and a little bit of a misnomer when it comes to infants that oh, don't worry, we're training them, we're teaching them how to self-soothe. Let's talk about that. Why is that? Why does that give you the ick? Yeah, that, I mean, I don't like that because they are relying on us, their caregivers, to soothe them. Um, mm-hmm. I, again, it's like sleep is not a skill that can be trained. You know, babies aren't self-soothing. I think it's one of those things that sounds nice in theory that we've maybe told ourselves or that we've heard from the sleep trainer community. And it feels good. We want to believe it, but the evidence shows that they cannot. And that's why, too, we can talk about this in a bit, but we talk about strategies for let's say you you do need to get stuff done around the house, right? You still want to be productive. Um, you need your baby to sleep. You want to get some rest. That's why baby wearing can be so helpful too. That mm. they feel they feel safest, you know, next to you. They can hear your heartbeat, and also um, it helps regulate their body temperature and their blood sugar. So instead of just relying on a crib or bassinet, there are ways to get creative so that you can sleep better too. Yes, absolutely. I'm a big fan of baby wearing. In fact, when it's nighttime and Eden is fighting her final nap, that's often the method that we use is I just, I'll put her in my carrier and we'll walk around the kitchen, maybe four laps. And usually she's out like a light. And I think about it as if, you know, they were nine months, 10 months in the womb and now they're outside and there's lights and sounds and people And it's crazy. So for us to put them close to us in our carrier, it almost resembles that comfort and that closeness that they had in the womb. And I want to talk about this too, because this is in Sarah Buckley's book, and it talks about how the capacities of our newborns are perfect for the environment that they will inhabit. Spoiler Mm. alert, it's mom's body. For example, we know that newborn focusing distance, it's 10 to 12 inches. That's perfect for looking at mom's face when you're holding your baby or when you're nursing her. The physical interactions with your baby contribute to physiological stability, mutual regulation like you talked about. So it's helping reduce 
the newborn stress hormone. It reduces their baby energy requirements. It improves their blood sugar levels. It stabilizes their temperature. And on mom's side, that contact with the baby enhances your mothering hormones like oxytocin, which we talked about before, the love hormone, and prolactin, which is the hormone required for breastfeeding and producing milk. And did you know... It also helps with regulating your fertility and increasing child spacing. Wow. So okay, wait. Of, I yeah. want to hear more about this because I knew all about blood sugar regulation, temperature, feeling safe. I need to know more about regulating fertility and or improving fertility and child spacing, mm-hmm. childbirth spacing. Yep. So I need to hear about this. Bed sharing coupled with nursing, it helps to delay your period So you're not able to Uh, get pregnant as early. So your baby can just have you exclusively. So if you were to become pregnant early, let's say with baby number two, your milk supply will change once your placenta grows. So it'll turn back into colostrum. So now your baby can't rely on you to nurse because the milk supply has changed. So biologically, if we are bed sharing, if we're in constant contact, especially if we're breastfeeding, we're delaying that ovulation cycle. So we have more space in between two babies. So your baby can get the most out of you that possibly can. That is so cool. And that makes so much sense. It's kind of like, you know, we talked about in our very first episode ever, uh, natural family planning. Talk about the most Mm -hmm. natural family planning because, of course, you know, you can get pregnant immediately after you have a baby. Probably Mm -hmm. not ideal. We know that it's more ideal to separate those pregnancies by at least 12 to 18 months per, you know, Lily Nichols and many other sources. So what better way to do that instead of taking, you know, birth control than to bed share? And and we'll talk about a later term that Dr. McKenna coined, which is breast sleeping. Yes, yes. So let's talk about that, the different um, options and the terminology that we'll be using throughout this episode, because I want us to kind of pivot into the different options moms have and what those things mean, the benefits of that. And I definitely want to get into SIDS for our listeners who might not be moms yet, who might not be informed on SIDS. So let's get into that. What is the terminology that we'll be using throughout today's episode, All on Sleep? Okay, so there's really three terms that everyone should know. Bed sharing, it's pretty straightforward. You are literally sharing a bed with your baby. Co-sleeping is the term that many tend to mix up with bed sharing or use interchangeably, but it's actually different. Co-sleeping is when you are in a separate sleeping space that is connected. So imagine you're on your bed, your infant is in the bassinet that is right next to your bed. And then room sharing is when you're sharing the same room, two separate sleeping spaces that are not connected. So your baby, let's say, is in the crib a few feet away from your bed. Okay, so bed sharing, co-sleeping, and room sharing. We're going to talk a lot about bed sharing, but also a little bit about co-sleeping too. And then SIDS, most of you probably already know what this stands for, but the acronym stands for Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. And there's a lot of myths around what causes this. And we're going Mm -hmm. to debunk a lot of that because there's a lot of fear-mongering with it, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And just off the topic of SIDS, in other countries like Australia, they might use the term SUDI, sudden Mm. unexplained death in infancy, but same thing. Mm. And SIDS is generally in the first year of life. 
but it's most frequent, I think, between two and four months is what the yeah. studies show. Mm-hmm. So early, early infant death, unexpected. Mm-hmm. So and let's get into pretty it. ominous. Yeah, let's get right yeah. into it. So should we let's, should we maybe go through some of our sources and, and point out some highlights? Definitely. And let's talk about the different options. Let's start there. And then we'll talk about the prevalence with SIDS with those different options. And then we can get into how the studies are poorly conducted oftentimes. Yes. And Surprise. we'll get into that and then <laughs> cite our resources there. So yeah. bed sharing. Let's start with bed sharing. Let's get into that. Why do we like it? Why would we be scared of that? Why are Why is the advice out there that bed sharing is is not great? Let's talk about it. Okay. Well, if you were to ask any typical pediatrician or just Joe Schmo, Jane Doe off the street, if they heard bed sharing, they're probably going to say, well, gee, you can, you know, kill your baby. You're going to roll over onto your baby. That's very dangerous, right? We've all been told your baby needs to sleep on their back, right? In a crib without anything in their crib. But really what appealed to me with bed sharing, and then I want to hear what appealed to you initially was, do you guys know I was recovering from a C-section and I did, I had very limited range of motion. So the thought of me knowing I wanted to exclusively breastfeed, the thought of me having to get out of my bed as I'm recovering in excruciating pain, lift my baby out of the crib, nurse my baby, put my baby back in and do that multiple times. It was enough to make me almost not want to breastfeed. So I knew I had to find an alternative. And I heard from my midwife that she had bed shared. I also heard from my IBCLC that she bed shared. And I discovered this book by Dr. James McKenna, Safe Infant Sleep. So after doing the research, it became very blatantly obvious that bed sharing is no riskier when done correctly than having your baby in a crib in a separate sleeping space. I also, I think the number one appeal to me too, aside from the convenience factor of literally just being able to roll over, right? And then pop your boob out and then roll back over and sleep was that I knew that exclusively breastfeeding for as long as possible or at least through the first year was a top priority and this is the way to go about it. But April, I want to hear your journey with bed sharing. Were you scared ever? How did you decide that this was going to be what you did with Eden? And I also want to hear what Hunter's reaction was when you told him you wanted to bed share. I started reading in pregnancy like crazy. And so once I finished this book, it was all over for me. It was just like, duh, this is natural. This is the instinct that you have. So we're going to do it. And oftentimes during pillow talk, I would just be reading this book out loud to Hunter. So he knew very well that it was something that was important to us just because of all of the benefits of the co-regulation and also keeping that love drug running. Like that to me, the oxytocin, you know, I can just like fail girl about oxytocin that to me was the number one thing and also the protection that it would have for your baby so I knew early on even before Eden got here that that's something that we're gonna strive for not to mention Hunter and I actually listened to an episode of the midwives cauldron that featured Dr. Sarah Buckley and she talked all about the benefits of physiological birth and bed sharing so we were both on board Um, And then when I talked to our midwives about it, they were like, absolutely, yes. 
<laughs> so it's funny that the specialists in the birth world outside of the medical system are all for the support of bed sharing. But I have an older sister who's a nurse and I asked her because she's got three kids too. After I told her about my home birth journey and the bed sharing, I asked her, how do you sleep with the babies? And it was almost like this very reluctant admittance that, yeah, we end up bringing baby into bed quite a bit. Like there's some sort of shame around it. Mm. Um, so that's just kind of what like got me fired up about is like, hey, wait a second. All of the science points to this being hugely beneficial to baby and to mom. Why is there shame around bed sharing? So I think also what I've experienced now that Eden is here, it's the most natural thing that I want to do. I want to be with her all day long. So the thought of even having her not by my side, it makes my heart hurt. And so that to me is just my body's reminder of stay close to your baby, develop that attachment. That connection is so important. Yes. And I'm like you. I feel the same way with Julian. He is six months old. He still has never slept in his crib. It's it's so funny. We love our crib. Thank you, mom, for the crib. It's beautiful. We love it. I, I was the one who asked for it initially, ironically. It's just so funny how, how these things work out. Now, we mm-hmm. do use the crib for occasional daytime naps. I don't always want to put him in the bed. And maybe I want to do something in our room, like organize my closet. I want him to be in his crib in his room. But it's few and far between. And I, I'm confident that one one day we will transition him to his own sleeping space. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, April, you hear this joke all the time from people who are a little bit skeptical about bed sharing is, well, is Eden going to be sleeping in your bed till she's in college? I hear that one a lot. And I just joke yeah. back. I'm like, yep, you know, we'll be sleeping with Julian through his 60s. But, you know, it, the <laughs> The truth is when babies are ready, and maybe that's when they're two, maybe when they're one, maybe a little older, right? It's different yes. for every family. They will transition. Now, I do want to point something out because I would imagine that we have some listeners who are thinking to themselves, okay, well, you know, not everyone feels comfortable with bed sharing. Maybe not everyone can safely bed share. Maybe the mom wants to bed share and the dad does not. So does that make them mm-hmm. irresponsible parents or does that mean that they're not attending to their baby's needs? And the answer is no. There are other ways to go about it. The bigger picture really is follow your baby's cues, right? Don't let your baby cry it out. Respond to your baby. But I do want to quickly highlight before we switch gears, I want to highlight some um, of the factors that do make families a safe candidate for bed sharing. This is from La Leche League. Mm -hmm. And La Leche League is a great breastfeeding resource and they're they're very reputable. So you want to make sure that your family is a non-smoking family, that you and your partner are sober and unimpaired. Keep in mind if either of you are taking any medications that could make you a deeper sleeper. Um, Mm -hmm. Or maybe you have even a sleep apnea, right? So those are some things to keep in mind that could make it risky. Because think about it. Those are the types of things where you wouldn't be able to hear your baby right next to you potentially. And maybe you wouldn't have that awareness of where your baby is in relation to you. So you do want to be conscientious of that. Also, you want to make sure you are a breastfeeding mother. This isn't just some, you know, like, oh, we want to, you know, plug breastfeeding. This is a safety matter. And it has to do with breastfeeding mothers go into a cuddle curl position. And Dr. McKenna talks about this in his book. I'm sure Sarah Buckley does too. 
Mm-hmm. This is a protective mechanism. And the position you're in is imagine your baby's nose, right, is right by your breast. And then your, your body's kind of making like a C position around them. This mm-hmm. is something that if you are offering bottles, which is fine, but if you're offering bottles or if your baby's formula fed, then mothers don't have this instinct. So moving on to the other factors that make a family a good candidate for bed sharing, your baby is healthy and full term. So if you do have a preemie baby, this isn't going to be something that you want to mess around with. If your baby has serious medical complications, just avoid it. You do want to make sure your baby's on his or her back, but April and I are going to talk about this too. So Obviously, if your baby is able to roll over on their own and they wind up on their stomachs like Julian and Eden do all the time, that's fine and different. And actually, maybe April, you you would argue too that, and I've heard this from other friends, some babies just sleep better on their stomachs, you know? Yeah, it's a touchy subject because you have all the rules out there, especially even from the La Leche League. It's, it's prone sleeping is dangerous, but... Eden or side sleeping even, but side sleeping is what worked for us in in the newborn, like very newborn days because of the obvious nursing convenience. The sideline nursing was something that we mastered before the regular nursing positions. So that worked for us. But we find that Eden gets a little bit of a less disrupted sleep if she's on her belly. Otherwise, she's startling a lot. She's kicking her like she has... um kind of spasms in her legs sometimes when she's trying to fall asleep and that will startle her. So when we put her on her belly, she tends to have a more relaxed sleep and we'll get a little bit longer of a stretch nine times out of 10. But of course, we didn't do this until she showed us that she can turn her head side to side on her own. So there you go, mamas. And again, listen to your instincts on that, right? These rules, yes, they're la leche, they are important, but rules in general about your baby, like... Anything that sounds too black and white, you have to remember there's always areas of gray. So, yeah, you know, rounding mm-hmm. it out, you want to make sure you um, are lightly dressed, right? So make sure your baby isn't overheated and you're on a safe surface. So a safe surface is a firm-ish surface. We have the purple mattress and it's on the firmer side. It's not like, you know, hard as a rock, but... I'll give you an example of a very unsafe surface, a waterbed, right? Or a mattress that's so mushy that, you know, like the moment you sit next to your baby and your baby's now rolling and rolling and rolling, like that is not a safe surface. We actually had a pretty plush pillow topper. So it was real plush, real thick. And we ended up taking that off just to make sure that it was a little firmer for her because what we don't want to have is a mattress that conforms to their body and then can suffocate because that is obviously what we're trying to get away from when you think about a safe surface. And we also need to, this was something that in my newborn education class, my doula Hannah was also the teacher of that. She came upstairs and showed us what a safe sleeping surface looks like as well. So what you also want to make sure that there are no pillows, no blankets, no sheets that can cover baby to suffocate them. So when we sleep, we separate our pillows. We have a king size bed, thankfully. So we separate our pillows, Hunter and I, and then we put Eden in between and we don't let the sheet come up above her diaper line. And as you mentioned, we make sure that her nose is in line with my breast. So she's a little further down. So if I get cold independently, I have a separate blanket that I can use to cover myself up. 
or cover her up, but we want to make sure that he's not pulling the sheets or the covers up over her to try and get warm himself. Love that. Thank you for mentioning that because, you know, La Leche League does not talk about the sheets or the pillows. That is really important. And I'll say something else too. You want to make sure there's no big gaps between your headboard and the mattress because that actually is a legitimate way that babies can die from dangerous bed sharing. No, I said dangerous because not all bed sharing is dangerous, is they can get stuck. So you either want to just Honestly, ideally, in a lot of cultures, especially in Asia, they will just have a mattress on the floor, right? We don't love Mm -hmm. the aesthetic of that. So we do have a different setup. We're very Mm -hmm. conscientious. We're both light sleepers too. That is key. So I hear all the time, and April, have you ever heard this like objection from people like, oh, I could never bed share because I'd roll onto the baby, right? Or I'm worried Mm -hmm. that I I wouldn't notice him or her right next to me. Do you hear that? I hear that all the time, and I've never rolled over onto Hunter. Have you ever rolled over onto Eric? (laughs) I have not, and that was going to be my follow-up question to you. And let me ask you this, April. Have you ever accidentally rolled all the way off your bed and onto your floor? Not once, but (laughs) I haven't had the luxury (laughs) of sleeping (laughs) sleeping that deep. Um, Right. So, no. Right. And so the reason I make that, you know, half joke is because if you're a bed sharing mom, you're going to hear this all the time from people who don't bed share. They assume that you are going to just roll over on your whole family. And the truth is, you know, I was very nervous the first time we bed shared, even though I got a, right? Because it, it feels so taboo. It feels like, oh my God, is this it? Is this the end? And you almost, you're such a light sleeper because you're so nervous that you almost can't even go to sleep. You're just like watching your baby. Yes. But, um, There's actually some science yeah. behind that too. I, I don't mean to interrupt, Ooh. but that's what Sarah know. talks about in her book too, is that if we are consistently sleeping with our baby, we become more co-regulated. So we become more in tune. The mother-baby pair has that bounce back relationship. So what's baby doing wakes mom up. What's mom's doing wakes baby up, which is actually really good because one of the causes of SIDS is when a baby can't arouse from a deep sleep. So it's not enough to wake mom or baby all the way up, but it does pull them out of that deep sleep. So those micro movements that we're doing in bed is actually really good to keep us both more acutely sensitive to each other's movements. So a couple things there. This ties in perfectly to why those seemingly benign and subtle comments or like marketing language is actually a little bit harmful. Mm-hmm. Like when we say, oh, you know, my my baby's sleeping 12 hours. Well, if your baby's just sleeping on their own 12 hours, I mean, that's that's awesome, right? Like we, we all want to be there one day. But to put that kind of expectation on a very young baby who should be waking more frequently as a survival mechanism, it can be a little bit dangerous, you know, for some moms who have these very impractical expectations postpartum. But something else it reminded me of April is sometimes I notice I will wake up moments before Julian wakes me up when we're Mm. bed sharing. And I wonder if that has to do with that co-regulation, like we're so in tune with one another. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say this, I don't think I will ever stop when I'm bed sharing, ever stop reaching over 
just to put my hand on Eden to make sure her little <laughs> is moving up and down. I don't think that will ever end. Like I remember just being almost hourly. I'll just kind of reach over and I'll either put my ear to her nose or I'll put my hand on her chest just to make sure she's alive. Because of course you, you, you never want to hurt your baby. You don't want your baby to die. So that instinct is not going to be shut down just because you're sleeping in the same bed. You know what I mean? Exactly. And so everything that we thought bed sharing was has actually turned out to be the opposite in the best way possible. And I think it's Mm -hmm. one of the things that really got us through postpartum because sleep, like we talk about, it's such a trigger point for moms and there's so many schools of thought. So why not make it easier on you, your partner? Yes, your partner will sleep better too. Why? Because there's less crying, there's less stress, there's less cortisol spikes. Everybody sleeps better, right? Yeah. So let's talk about other objections because we've talked about the one that is, oh, aren't you going to roll over and hurt your baby? So we've kind of talked about that. Another objection I've heard is you're going to spoil your baby or your baby's going to become dependent on sleeping with you and then they'll never be independent. What do you say to that? Oh, it's, I mean, I think it's funny to say your baby will never be independent because you're bed sharing with a baby. I I mean, do you know of anyone who still sleeps with their parents in their 30s or 40s who is bed shared as a baby? I I certainly don't, but I do have an anecdote actually on this and I did get the permission from my sister on this one. So without getting into too much of the details, my younger sister and I are nine years apart. She's younger than I am. And we have different dads. So her father, my stepfather, um, passed away when she was six. And my mom got lost on a, on a drug route. And so anyway, we ended up becoming homeless. So our neighbors actually legally adopted my younger sister and took me in when I was 15 until I was in college. And they became what we call, I call them my pseudo parents, Debbie and Brian. But I remember when Elena was a baby, my mom and my stepdad would go on a date and I would be the babysitter, which I was obsessed. Like you have your own baby doll, but it's real. So I always was given the tip of when she's ready for bed, put her in the crib and let her cry it out and she'll soothe herself. And so that's what we did. And you don't know any better, right? So I would, I remember, and you're a kid. I can remember it. Yeah, I can remember it as clear as day. It is like imprinted on my brain. One night in particular, I put her in her crib and she just cried for what felt like an eternity. And it broke my heart. I had my mom's advice in my ear of just let her cry because eventually it'll end and she'll go into a nice deep sleep. So the cry it out method. Fast forward, when when Debbie and Brian adopted Elena, she felt, I mean, of course she suffered some childhood trauma, right? Losing mom and and dad, uh, becoming adopted as a young child. Of course, that's going to have lasting impact. But she slept with Debbie and Brian until she actually moved out of the house at 18. So because she craved that security and that comfort and just that proximity seeking, right? So this is just an, a testament to that if we don't develop that attachment at a young age, the implications can be long lasting. And then as an adult, so the converse is happening, right? If we let them cry it out, we're not bed sharing early. Mm-hmm. We're not developing that connection. Then they're going to crave it in their adult life. Fast forward now, Elena has her own baby, Brindley, who's about two. And Elena didn't do the research like, 
like you and I did, right? With reading the books and all this stuff. But naturally, her instinct was sleep with Brenly, breastfeed Brenly. Benny is her little nickname. She would often be just in her diaper. And I would think, God, I put some clothes on that baby. But she was often doing a skin to skin. And it's just naturally instinctive to her to parent that way. And now she's developed this beautiful connection. And Brenly is starting to transition into her own bed at um, two years old. So I thought that was a, a really cool development of how this works and also unlearning the patterns that our parents had, even though they may have been well-intended, misinformed. And now it yes. impacting her parenting. So, And actually, when Brinley was six months old, they came for a visit over Christmas. And I remember Elena and Brinley sleeping in the same bed. And I just ridiculed her for that. And also, I remember I wanted to be the one to put Benny to sleep. So I took her into the other room and I'm rocking her in the chair and she just won't stop crying for, for me. And I'm trying to sing her little songs and rock her and hold her real tight just so she doesn't startle herself. And she just wouldn't stop. And so Elena comes in and I remember being frustrated of like, let me, let me put her to sleep. Like she's going to become too dependent on you. And shame on me now that I know better, I'm humbled and had to apologize to my sister and ask her forgiveness for just not understanding and providing this really crappy advice out of, like you said, good intention, but having the wrong information. Wow. Elena, thank you for letting April share that because um, one, it's obviously it's very traumatic, right? And that's um, a very intense situation. Uh, and I think that what our listeners can take away from it is a few things. Well, one, uh, we, we're often told like, oh, if you bed share, just like you said, April, like they're, they're never going to get out of the bed. But really it's, it's the opposite sometimes. If you let a baby cry out for too long, that's when they're going to crave bed sharing as they're older. And actually mm-hmm. Dr. McKenna talks about how when you bed share when your baby's younger, they actually are more independent and less codependent yes. when they become adults. And I found that that was one of my most fascinating takeaways from the book too. But you, you talked about too, just a lot of like well-intentioned but misguided advice it's sometimes from the sorry boomers it's from the boomer generation <laughs> we love you but but and some of the advice is great and sound and some of it, it it's got to go and i i want to share a quick anecdote too from, i'm going to keep this source anonymous, anonymous just to protect this person's privacy um okay she she didn't want to be named but she wants us to share this with listeners because there's a lot to glean from it um, and how we can do better when we're supporting new moms with uh, infant sleep advice. So here's some of the, quote, bad advice that this person was given. One is just give her formula, her being the baby. She'll sleep better. And I asked, okay, who said this? This was from many different friends and family. And I just want to say too, a few months ago, I went to a local moms and babies group and it was led by an IBCLC. And I, I just kind of came and went. I just wanted to see what it was all about. And I also thought that formula fed babies do sleep longer, but apparently there's this one mom who's giving her baby formula and the baby woke up pretty frequently. So maybe that's not the case. Hmm. Uh, next thing though, we have to remember that nursing isn't just for nutrition, it's also for comfort and, and so, hydrate. 
Yes, and hydration. There's so many reasons. So for us to think like, oh, the baby is hungry. My local IBCLC, because um, I used to be like, oh, is Julian hungry? Do you think? Is he is he okay? I, I would just like check in with her. She said we need to reframe the conversation around like hunger and and thirst with babies, right? So mm-hmm. there's a million reasons they could want to go to the breast to fall asleep, right? But okay, going back to other not so great advice this person received. Don't contact nap. She'll never want to sleep alone. Okay. Mm. Also, this her her pediatrician told her to put the baby in a crib, leave the house, let her cry as long as it takes for her to fall asleep. Whether mm. it's an hour, two hours, three hours, Mm-mm. just leave the house. And she and the pediatrician said, make sure your husband is present, but not you. And get a load Ugh. of this. Yeah, you're not going to like this. The pediatrician told her that she is, quote, allergic to her baby's tears. He advised, he being the pediatrician, advised for either the nanny or the husband to just put her in the crib. And then guess what? The pediatrician said, don't worry. I did this with all my kids. Oh, and they're fine. Every day it'll get shorter. Um, And then guess what? One day, like by the end of the week, my kid was jumping into his crib and knew it was a safe space and he was going to sleep. A lot lot to unpack there. Right, April? I I hate that so much. Um, I know. A, because it probably was so so super unnatural to your friend. Yes. Oh my God. When Eden cries, I feel it on a cellular level. And my my first instinct is to comfort her to figure out what the hell's wrong with her. So yes. to be told that that is wrong and that your baby is, oh my God, that, that makes me upset. Okay, listeners, you will probably hear this quite a bit. So here's a little retort that you can use if somebody says, that their children turned out fine, or if you hear from others, oh, my mom did that and I turned out fine, here's something to consider. Did you turn out fine because of that parenting choice, or did you turn out fine in spite of that parenting choice? But I do want to talk about why Cry It Out is such a terrible piece of advice No matter what. So the only thing that I can be absolute about in terms of infant sleep is that cry it out is a horrible choice. Do you want to get into that? Oh, I certainly do. Let's do it. Okay. And all of this will be found in Sarah Buckley's book at the, at the end. It's after page 228, um, all the way through 260 and cites McKenna as some of the studies. Okay. We all know what the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system is, right? Sympathetic nervous system is fight or flight. So when a baby is in an initial distress mode, it activates this fight or flight, right? Which releases high levels of epinephrine and norepinephrine, which is adrenaline and noradrenaline. Along with that, it also produces cortisol, which is our stress chemical, and other activating brain chemicals, causing hyperarousal along with hypermetabolic state. So baby is using a ton of energy and its brain is firing off all the stress hormones, okay? When those brain cells are consuming excess fuels, that leads to metabolic stress. And if prolonged, cell death. This kills your baby's brain cells. This hyperarousal that your baby is 
putting off is a means to biologically attract a caregiver's attention. As the state escalates, our babies are not just stressed, but frantically stressed. And a researcher named Bruce Perry calls it fear terror. Okay, when that hyperarousal is long lasting with no response from mom, caregiver, nanny, whomever, distress gives way to a dissociative state. So your brand new baby is now dissociating. So yes, crying stops because you know why? The baby shuts down physiologically and emotionally. So the parasympathetic nervous system is activated, which slows your heart rate. The parasympathetic is the rest and digest. Slows your heart rate down, decreases your blood pressure to help conserve energy. However, your SNS is still activated. So now both of these systems are firing. So here's what happens to the brain. High levels of opiate chemicals lead to a numbing of pain and emotion and then inhibit crying. So when you think that your baby is Mm self-soothing by crying it out, it's actually shutting down the brain. This despair dissociation is adaptive because it's hardwired into all mammals as a safety mechanism because in case of abandonment, by a mother in the wild where crying would increase the risk from a predator and waste energy, this is, a, this is built in. To protect your baby from abandonment, right? This toxic brain state and cell death leads to abnormal function in the emotional brain in your limbic system. Mm-hmm. And according to some experts, may increase lifelong mental health vulnerability. So we're talking wow. about anxiety, depression, the inability to emotionally regulate on your own, PTSD. And not to put my younger sister on blast here, but she suffers with some of that stuff. And you wonder if it's all because of those very early days where her basic physiologic needs were not met. So this sequence from fear, terror to despair, dissociation, prolonged separation from mom and caregivers is experienced by your baby as a life-threatening separation. So there's a reason when your baby cries that it hurts your heart and soul, and that's built in. That's hardwired. So the number one thing you need to go do is listen to your mom instincts and go get your baby. Yeah, exactly. So if you have, quote, experts telling you things like, you don't nurse your baby to sleep or, you know, just let them cry and close the door, it's coming from a sort of well-intentioned place because they're also looking out for the mom, right? Like, we get it. It's it's really tough, especially for moms, like in Western societies or America specifically, where you get, you're lucky if you get 12 weeks of leave. That's where I think this whole sleep training culture comes into play because the rest of these first world nations around the world have these very generous, lengthy maternity leaves, right? So you can get adjusted to less sleep, but people are really preying on moms and and on families and they're Mm -hmm. capitalizing on the exhaustion and the desperation. And what it looks like is like, don't look, don't watch your baby. Don't tune into your baby's cues. Make them more independent. Make them grow up faster. And the, there's only one person that's benefiting, the sleep trainer, right? It, it's benefiting the, the manufacturer of the snoo. It's benefiting the, the sleep sack and just all the other gadgets, but it's really not benefiting the baby. And I think you really mm. made a good point when you said the babies aren't self-soothing. That's not why they've stopped crying. It's just because their brains have shut down. That 
is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And so that's a good segue into the next leg of this discussion, which I like that you kind of coined this term of predatory marketing Mm. from the infant sleep industry. And let's just start off by saying that the online baby products industry is a $15 billion industry. Wow. Meanwhile, the likes of McKenna and Sarah Buckley and all these professionals who are actual PhDs within a specialized niche of parenting, what do they stand to gain from telling you to use your boobs and to sleep in your own bed? They get nothing, right? right? So when you look at the quote-unquote studies that are out there to support the claims that these companies are making, just put on your your kind of spidey sense to figure out, well, wait a second, who would these studies benefit? Nobody's going to make money off of telling you to breastfeed. Nobody's going to make money off of telling you to share your own bed and not buy any special products so your baby can sleep better. But there's a lot to be gained from those manufacturers. Oh, yeah. and so oh, let's yeah. talk about why you coined the term oh. predatory. Let's, let's, I want to dig into that. I think it's taking advantage, like, you know, like I said before, of just exhausted and desperate moms, right? Because we don't really know what we're doing. So we have to rely on our intuition, but we also would love to rely on advice from people who have done it before, whether that's our friends or family. And then moms are also looking at their pediatrician for advice. But the problem is pediatricians are generalists and we know what the AAP or the American Academy of Pediatrics has to say about bed sharing. They say all Mm -hmm. bed sharing is dangerous and it all leads to SIDS. So we know that pediatricians aren't going to risk their license and tell you, yes, you can bed share. But going back to the predatory marketing, I want to just call out a few items that come to mind. One is the snoo. For anyone who doesn't know what the snoo is, imagine it's like the Ferrari of bassinets. This Mm -hmm. thing will swaddle your baby for you. It will rock your baby automatically. It looks really sleek. Does it swaddle? I did not know that. Well, not in the most official sense, but um, I think, I don't know if it's Velcro or like your baby is essentially strapped down. They claim because it's safer. So your baby doesn't roll over. We know that inhibiting those primal, you know, infant reflexes like Moro is Mm. not really helping your, your baby in any way. Okay. So for the snoo, right. It, the reason this is an ideal, well, one, it's like over $1,000. It might even be $1,500. So it's very expensive. It also, if you think about it, when your baby's all wrapped up tightly like that and it's it's being rocked by a, a device instead of getting that human touch it so craves, it's hindering those early feeding cues. And for some babies, mm-hmm. like I remember Julian, I don't know if Eden was like this, they can go through those first, what is it, four or five feeding cues in like 30 Rapidly. seconds. Yeah, right? Yes. We yes. know that crying is the last feeding The cue. last so, stage, yeah. And yes. it's, it's okay, right? We're not saying like, oh my God, if your baby cries, you're a terrible parent. Obviously, babies cry, right? But the point is we want to respond to them. And if you mm-hmm. are a mom who desires to breastfeed or exclusively breastfeed, then the best thing you can do is put your baby to the breast as often as possible, especially to establish your supply, especially early on. Um, Mm -hmm. So here's my two cents on that. Instead of spending a thousand or whatever it is, $1,500 on the snoo, go get yourself a postpartum doula. I want to give a shout out to mine, Kendra Holman. She's really great. And, you know, a lot of people 
have heard of doulas like in birth, but they don't know about postpartum doulas. So instead you can spend that money if you were going to spend it anyway on a snoo get yourself some human support and help so that you can maybe take some naps while someone else looks over your baby, right? Mm -hmm. Or you can bed share during the afternoon while your postpartum doula makes you and your family a delicious lunch. But going on to another, just some other items and marketing that we've observed, there's even some bougie diaper brands, which April and I love, which are kind of, you know, sustainable on the nicer side. And this marketing, it's seemingly very benign and subtle. You so know, almost, uh-huh. right? It's so innocuous seeming, right? Like you wouldn't even notice it where they're saying it's all about um, make sure your baby can sleep longer, right? So it's promoting mm-hmm. sleep as long as possible. That sounds fine, right? It sounds innocent. But again, it's like, why are we trying to instill this message in, in mom's brains that, my baby's a good baby if they sleep all the way through the night. They shouldn't wake up once or twice. Mm-mm. Yep. Like we said, SIDS, the, one of the reasons is because they can't arouse out of a deep sleep. So we don't necessarily want them sleeping deep all night long at this stage. Their brains aren't ready for that. Um, I think also what I hate to see, but we fall victim to all the time, especially in the very vulnerable early postpartum, is all of these Instagram influencers, um, mm. well-intended, but they're these sleep coaches or they have sleep programs where they have a hundred percent success rate and we don't let them cry it out, but almost every single one of those programs does have a cry it out slant to it. Um, Yes. And I think the advice that I would urge moms to consider is if anybody is ever selling you something on Instagram that has a hundred percent success rate and every baby will sleep insert number six, eight, 10 hours a night on our program. Bullshit. Because Mm -hmm. if you were an adult looking for some sort of sleep hack and 100% efficacy and every single person, regardless of their nutrition or their job or their stress level, would have the same result, you would call bullshit. So why would we not call bullshit when a baby has 25% of their brain? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. There's no such thing as a magic pill for anything, whether it's weight loss, sleep, perfect skin. There's there's no magic pill. These things take time and it takes getting to the root cause. And oftentimes when we put these gadgets on our babies and we swaddle them down and we put them in the snoo and we don't nurse them to sleep, it's like maybe the one thing they wanted was just to be held for the sake of being held, comfort. right? So yes. yeah, they want they want comfort. They want to be close to you. When we try to separate them, it's going to make sleep harder for everyone. And I actually, speaking of SIDS, I want to go into these anti-bed sharing campaigns of oh, throughout yes. history, yeah, which, which Dr. McKenna highlights. So if you have the book, Safe Infant Sleep, you can turn to page 259. And I just want to read some of these uh, to listeners just so you can hear the the fear-mongering language behind it and how extremist and alarmist it is. So public health messages about the dangers of bed sharing tend to be intense, frightening, vilifying, judgmental, and focused on shock value, Dr. McKenna says. Yet 
Despite the hard-hitting imagery and bold slogans in the following examples, the campaigns have failed to stop the practice of bed sharing. So obviously they're not working. We all do it in secrecy or not. Let me, let me go down the list. This one campaign says, does your baby sleep safe? And it shows a woman who looks absolutely just devastated and terrified. And she, she has in quotes, my son Charlie passed away on December 29th. And I'm not trying to diminish any of this. Obviously, it's devastating. But you know what's devastating is withholding information on safe bed sharing from women so that their only alternative is to do it the dangerous way. Okay, so some other campaigns include for too many babies last year, this, meaning the bed, was their final resting place. I mean, how how morbid. Isn't that morbid? And then I'll just go through a couple more. Your baby sleeping with you can be just as dangerous. And then it's a picture of a sleeping baby in a bed next to a butcher knife. Really? Come on, Oh, logical, because we definitely would put... We're not even putting stuffies in the bed with the babies, (laughs) and now we're going to put a butcher knife in there? Right, and and I get it. They're, They're like, okay, it's just as dangerous as sleeping with a knife, but it's like, you know, I feel like they they really think that moms have this just huge lack of judgment. I wonder if these were the same people, by the way, who were like, smoking is okay during pregnancy back in the day. Probably. And they had those cute little ads of a really sexy mom who was just like a string bean and a basketball with a cigarette. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And it's the same people who probably still tell us, don't eat any blue cheese, you can't have a sip of wine, and don't eat sushi. So, (laughs) I mean, you guys get the gist. Yeah, exactly. It's extremist and it's alarmist and, and it's really false. And I want to, while, while we're talking about just different things we, we pulled from these books, I wanted to also talk about one of my favorite myths and tell me how you feel about this one. Okay. Babies need silence to fall asleep. How do you feel about that statement? Oh, Lord. No, there's no such thing <laughs> as silence in this household. Uh, we have three dogs. We have a really annoying Roomba named Dawn who gets lost all over the place and it takes him about an hour to find his dock. There's no such thing as silence in this house. And Eden sleeps through all of it. So yeah. <laughs> I'm not worried about it. <laughs> I would imagine she sleeps through all of it, especially when you are baby wearing her. Absolutely. And we do have a sound machine. We don't tend to use it because it's in her nursery and we don't use the nursery. <laughs> but Hunter falls asleep nine times out of 10 to brown noise. So we'll have mm. that on in our room. So. Now, I know what white noise is, but I feel like such a noob. What's brown noise? I know. I didn't know it was a thing either, but it's it's not as white noise is too much static. Brown noise is a little more subdued, but mm-hmm. you should Google it because it's, it's oh, an amazing well. sleep, sleep hack. Okay. So anyone using white noise, check out brown noise. I'm going to do that um, after we record this episode. I'm, I'm interested. So... Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about babies need silence to fall asleep because one of the the cutest things or funniest things that happened in Julian's, you know, first weeks of life, anytime we got a visitor, they would tiptoe in, right? And, yeah. and whisper. <laughs> so and they were yeah. and which which I totally appreciate. I'd much rather have that than someone barging in and screaming. But then I would just talk in a normal tone, right? And uh, I would say for the first few months, maybe up through four months, he was to- he actually slept better hearing people around him. He would fall asleep in some of the loudest situations. Like we were in Fort Lauderdale. It was really noisy and busy outside. He was just totally asleep, mouth wide open. So 
this ties into a lot of the myths I see on social media with the sleep trainers. I, I always see like in the algorithm, I don't know why they're targeting me. I'm not their target audience. Because you're a postpartum mom, that's why. <laughs> I know. They know way too much about me, obviously. But they, what they don't know is I'm not into arbitrary sleep schedules. Now, here's the, I know this is also a trigger for moms. What I mean to say is, I mean watch your baby, watch your baby's cues, right? And you get to learn your baby. Every baby has their own cues and some babies have very similar cues. That's fine. But for me to be like, okay, eight o'clock, he's awake at nine o'clock, he's asleep. It is exhausting. You don't, we never put him on a schedule. We feed on demand. We Mm -hmm. sort of sleep on demand. I can tell when he's getting cranky or if the nap is too long or short. What are, Um, what are his cues for you? What are his unique cues to tell you like, mom, I'm tired? Well, he gets just fussy and I know it's not because he wants to nurse and I can tell Mm -hmm. that he was just changed. Also like purplish, reddish kind of hue between his eyebrows and eyelids, right? Eden gets the red eyebrows and that's like indicator number one. And then her little eyes get like, we call it wrinkly. Like they just start (laughs) to look really tired. So then I immediately know I'm like, you're tired. Let's go. Yes. And then every mom has their own way of getting their babies to sleep. But I feel like, again, it's predatory because these sleep trainers, I don't even know how much they charge, but they're going to try to get you to buy their program. And it reminds me of just all these infomercials from the 90s, you know, these like quick fixes and the zone diet and South Beach. And it's like, no, everybody's Mm -hmm. going to be different. But I want to read this quick excerpt from the book, Safe Infant Sleep. And it's, yeah, babies need silence to fall asleep. He talks about actually his his own anecdote, the author. So some parents may choose to put the infant down for a nap in a separate room with the door closed, where sensory access between the baby and the parents and other family members is not possible or likely. Mm. Admittedly, and I must laugh at myself for this, before I came to study infant sleep, I would often carefully lie my baby down to sleep in a separate space. I would walk away slowly step-by-step, putting my Mm -hmm. foot down gently, right? And hoping the floor would not creak. When it did, my son would open his eyes, letting me know to forget it. You've been caught. And I was. So here's his recommendation. Yes, been there, done that. I hope this is going to be a huge hack for a lot of moms who think they need dead silence in order for their baby to sleep because you do not. So Dr. McKenna says, my recommendation today is never to close the door to a baby's room since babies find sleep when they need it and they were not designed to sleep in complete social and sensory isolation. A silent environment for the infant does nothing but potentially condition the baby to only be able to fall asleep in silence. I thought that was fascinating. Hmm. Yeah. And I almost think that it's like a biological response again, because babies instinctively, they want to know that your caregiver is in a close proximity to feel safe in order to fall asleep. So if your door is shut and they feel completely isolated, they're probably fearful on a very biological level. Somebody can hurt them or harm them or they're unsafe. I'll tell you a little story. I was just it just happened to me the other day. Um, you know how it is postpartum. Like we mm. nearly pee our, pee our pants all the time. <laughs> yep. So I had Eden up on the counter where we have our little changing. And I immediately was like, oh my God, I have the urge to go pee. So I sprinted. I didn't even tell her. Usually I, I narrate my life in front of this baby. But I was like, I got to go or I'm going to pee myself. So I sprinted <laughs> to the bathroom and I heard her like let out a shrill, like a cry that 
broke my heart. And I bet on a very, you know, subliminal level, she was like, oh, shit, something bad happened and they left me for dead. Like, it's so sad, but probably yes. there's something happening there. So I don't doubt it for a second that um, closing the door and making them feel isolated is not good for helping them to sleep. Oh, yeah. They could potentially have the same reaction as Eden did when you had to rush to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So let's see. We talked about the bed sharing. Let's talk about co-sleeping quickly just because not yeah. everybody is going to bed share and not everybody wants to bed share or they might have some conditions that prevent them from doing it safely and we never want to recommend unsafe sleep. So yes, co-sleeping, which is maybe a bassinet sidecar situation. Exactly. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a fantastic alternative for families who desire to be close to their baby, but for whatever reason, either don't want a bed share or are not a safe candidate for bed sharing. It's, it's the perfect halfway point be- between room sharing or putting your baby in their own room and bed sharing. It also promotes breastfeeding. What do you think about it? Yeah, and I'm a part of a Facebook group called, I think it's called Biologic Infant sleep. And so they talk about the safe seven, like the La Leche League. And I posted a picture on there just the other night of um, me and Eden side sleeping. And Mm. it got 1300 different comments, likes and hearts and whatever. And there were so many women who were just adding their little picture of like, yeah, this is me and my baby. And this is me and my baby doing the bed sharing. But then there was also a bunch of pictures of just homegrown kind of sidecar situation. So if you don't or can't afford, you know, whatever the the Ferrari, like this oh, yeah. new, there are all, all kinds of ways to get creative. And if you want a resource to turn to, that Facebook group has tons of it. And I've also heard where when you have multiple kids taking two king-size beds, Hmm. putting them on the floor and all of you sleeping there. So there was one mama in there who had five kids ranging from a newborn to like a seven-year-old and they were all sleeping on the same, like two king-size beds pushed together. That's cozy. And you know, that is amazing. We also recognize it's not going to be in every family's budget to have two king beds, right? So so that is also why co-sleeping is mm-hmm. a great alternative. And I, th- I think it's a really good halfway point. But I have heard of the family bed thing and I'm personally very fond of it. I think it's a good yeah. idea. I think we'll be doing that if we if we tend to have more. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, the but, last alternative. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Um, real quick, I just wanted to point out something else about co-sleeping from Safe Infant Sleep, just on page 88. So, okay. you know, talking about bed sharing and co-sleeping because... I know we didn't talk about specifics with the risks. We hear about the risks. So I just want to highlight what Dr. McKenna said. He said, here is what we know. Mothers have co-slept with their babies throughout human history. And it has proven evolutionary beneficial for them to do so. Most nations, get a load of this, everyone. Most nations with SIDS rates much lower than the United States regularly practice bed sharing on firm surfaces with low rates of adult smoking and high rates of breastfeeding. In other words, they are safely breast sleeping. Co-sleeping is a tradition in at least 70% of all documented cultures, and it is universal across modern hunter-gatherer cultures. Most world cultures 
consider forcing babies to sleep apart from their mothers to be an act of cruelty or infant abuse. Now, that Mm -hmm. very last part is going to be tough for a lot of people Mm -hmm. to hear. Oh, yeah, that's tough. Again, I am the messenger. This was in the book, Safe Infant Sleep. Take it or leave it. Take it with a grain of salt. That is to show you how different cultures see things wildly differently, right? I only really knew about what we did in the U.S. and what the American Academy of Pediatrics was telling moms to do. What do you think about that? I mean, even as adults, we don't like to go to bed alone. I don't like the nights where I have to sleep without my husband if he's away for a weekend. Yet we expect newborn babies and young infants to be suddenly okay with being out of the womb and then being put in another room to sleep? Yes. And you just think about our culture in general, like we are a consumerist culture. So there is a solution that you can buy that like what I hate about this sleep industry or baby baby products industry in general is that it downplays mom's intuition. It gets into your psyche and it tells you that you are not enough for your baby. You can't feed your baby by yourself. You can't safely sleep with your baby. So you need our products to help you do it. And I hate that because there is nothing stronger than a mother's intuition. And how dare these companies undermine that and take advantage of these moms, especially first-time moms, especially in postpartum, and fill their head with doubt and fear and then make them start to second-guess their own instincts. That's the part that really pisses me off. Yes. The point is, listen to your intuition, watch your baby's cues, and respond to your baby. And don't feel guilty for doing things like nursing your baby to sleep. And I'm so proud of my friend, by the way, because even though she got this not so great advice in a very vulnerable time when she was exhausted and her baby was waking up frequently, she knew deep down and she trusted her gut that like she was going to respond to her baby in a respectful way. And you know what, Kat? Let's play this out. How would you feel if, let's say, you were having a terrible dream and you woke up and you were really startled by it, or you were just feeling sad or scared and you were crying? How would you feel if Eric didn't roll over and try to come and love on you and comfort you? What a great example, right, of putting our intuition first. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to be a scientist. You just have to be a mom. Exactly. You don't need to know anything. You do not need to be an expert to be the mom. Really quickly, because we've talked about pediatricians, and I don't want to make it seem like we're, you know, belittling pediatricians. However, Dr. Sarah Buckley does a really good job of confronting SIDS studies. And you think that's the education that these practitioners are getting is, hey, they're just the messenger like we are, right? They're just the messenger. They're seeing what the studies are showing. And so that's where their advice aligns. But on page 254 of of the Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering book, she talks about how the research that is often cited for SIDS describes only the number of cases and does not include a control group which means it's not a useful or accurate study in assessing risk, talking about bed sharing versus not bed sharing. This includes, she says, high-profile studies that have been used by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, which lists the number of babies dying in adult beds, but with no comparison figures. So it automatically recommends against bed sharing because they just look at, well, babies died in a 
adult beds, the limitation of the study, I should say, include a lack of differentiation between habitual and reactive bed sharing. So like we had said earlier, if you build this habit of bed sharing, that's what fine tunes that sensitivity to you and your baby. If you're doing it reactively because you're exhausted or your baby's sick or you don't follow the safe seven and you just accidentally fall asleep, that's where risks come into play. But if you isolate these studies and take out those dangerous things like alcohol, smoking, use of duvets and comforters, or extreme parental tiredness, household overcrowding, those factors that make bed sharing unsafe, if you take out those factors, then the studies actually promote bed sharing because it's safer. So these studies that the likes of, you know, consumer product safety, AAP, pediatricians, all these people are citing, if we if we use those studies and pull out those variables, then it obviously shows that bed sharing is safer. So that's so funny. That blew my mind of like, okay, we can tell who's lobbying, who's funding these studies mm-hmm. just by the outcome. It's like, hey, here's the outcome. Let's test for that and make sure that it validates our assumption. Yeah. And that goes back to, I know we're going to talk about this in future episodes, but like, what is the scientific method, right? And are we trying to find the conclusion we want and give ourselves confirmation bias and then work our way backward? Because that's not science. Science is, I have a hypothesis. I'm going to test it out. I don't know what the conclusion is yet, but let's see. But unfortunately, we've gone so far away from that. So I think we have covered a lot of the topics that we wanted to talk about. Bed sharing is the number one suggestion if you can do it safely, if you're a good candidate, because you're literally listening to your body's instinct. You are fueling your baby's development. There's also really quickly, Sarah Buckley talks about um, what happens on an emotional level with you and your baby if you co-sleep. Oh, yes. Bed sharing and other forms of co-sleeping. So not just bed sharing, but co-sleeping. If you do the sidecar, if you do the room share, put the bassinet in the same room as you and and your husband or your partner. Bed sharing and other forms of co-sleeping, especially associated with breastfeeding, are likely to enhance infant brain levels of beta endorphin, a pleasure hormone released during infant parent interactions. Beta endorphin is thought to enhance growth in parts of the brain that regulate emotional states. So if we indulge early on being there, building the trust, building that emotional connection to your baby, in the long term, it actually leads to independence and better regulation of their emotional states. So I thought that was a beautiful thing is if we make the deposits now, our withdrawals can be so much better in the future. Yes. And then that reminds me too, like mamas, let's slow down. We don't need to rush to graduate our babies to another room. I feel like that is a huge pressure that society puts on us for really no valid reason. I think we covered the bed sharing, the co-sleeping, the room sharing as an alternative. Again, this episode is not intended to shame you for your decisions. If these are decisions that you've already made without knowing that's okay. We know better. We do better. And always learning as mothers, like that's never going to end. So I think if there's not anything else that you wanted to hit on, we can close this episode with our listener question. 
Yes. Okay. So one of our um, followers on Instagram and podcast listeners asked a great question. How do you know when to wake baby to feed, right? That was the question essentially. Okay. I always talk about how I'm not a doctor, right? I'm not a, a quote expert. I'm just a mom. However, I have breastfed my son exclusively for six months. And I've also worked closely with IBCLCs both in person and over workshops. So I want to credit Trisha Ludwig of the Downstairs podcast, right? She's amazing. We both have worked with her. She's an IBCLC. And I'm going to share some notes from one of the breastfeeding workshops I took with her in my third trimester. So the the short answer is this. You want to follow your baby's cues. And especially in those first couple of weeks, and I can tell you this from my experience, you want to put your baby to the breast as often as possible, right? You are establishing your supply at that time. And I really am speaking to moms who just desire to breastfeed or exclusively breastfeed. I do not know firsthand about formula feeding. That is a totally different topic. This is not to shame anyone who uses formula. I just cannot speak to it firsthand. Ideally, your baby's going to breastfeed within the first 24 hours of being born, right? You want them to latch in that first hour to two, also known as the golden hour. This is when your baby is in a high alert state of mind, right? So just put your baby on your chest as soon as you can. They will seek out the chest just like April discussed in the birth story, right? They do they do something called the breast crawl. It's really cool. So with Julian, right, I had my C-section. So I needed support with either Eric or one of the L&D nurses or my mom bringing Julian to me while I was healing in those early days. You really don't want your baby going many hours after birth without uh, getting any, you know, milk, from you. Mm-hmm. So this can lead to low blood sugar, fatigue. And then if you're in the hospital setting, your baby can potentially get taken away from you because of low blood sugar. So just keep that in mind. And it is normal for your baby, believe it or not, to take one long stretch of sleep right after birth. It could be like five to six hours. And you want to make sure that's really the only time in the next four to six weeks that your baby should ever sleep that long and think of it as a little present to you, right? For, for going through labor. So it should not happen before the first feeding and it should only happen one time in the next four to six weeks. And your baby should be awakened to feed early on. You want to look out for feeding cues Mm -hmm. Um, there's rooting, right? Well, the very first cue is your baby's just alert and awake. That's always a cue. And if they are like later on after your supplies established, if your baby's pulling away, then, you know, you follow your baby's cues, right? You don't have to force it on them, but there's a bunch of baby's baby cues. They root, they look around, they start sucking their hands. The last cue is crying. And then tips on how you can gently wake up your baby to feed them. Well, if you do skin to skin, like we talk about often, they are going to spontaneously wake more. Do not Mm -hmm. swaddle them, right? This is why we don't like the snoo because it's really hard to see their feeding cues and then they just end up crying, which is the last cue. Mm -hmm. And when your baby is a deep sleeper and they're more difficult to awaken, this can happen if they're premature, for example. But if your baby is healthy and to term, it should be fairly easy for them to wake. I remember Julian was waking probably every two hours. Maybe he'd get a three-hour stretch, you know, in those very early weeks. Yeah, right. They'll come to yeah. you. They'll tap. They'll tap you in when they're hungry or hydrate or they want comfort. I've never had to wake Eden to feed her. 
she's she's always yeah. kind of alerted me. And that kind of also goes on the same topic. Uh, I know we talked about this a little bit, but I did want to ma- mention this too, is they sleep on demand as well. So for me, I don't tr- follow any sort of sleep schedule. It's just unrealistic for us to have the same day every day. But I do manage her wake windows. And I think that is good advice is to take a look at your baby and at the age of Eden that Eden's in, you know, three to four months, she shouldn't really be awake for longer than two hours. Otherwise she'll start to get cranky or overtired. But again, you cue into those cues of the the red eye brows or um, reaching up to their face. Like they're trying to rub their eyes, things like that. Yes. I think that's such a good point. And something that you do that I love, I know you have the series, um, you know, baking with baby and your, your baby wearing Eden, right. And so something, you know, we briefly mentioned before that we just want to highlight is if you need, if you just have a jam packed schedule and you need to cook, you know, for your household, you have errands to run. One of the best ways you can get your baby to sleep while you're on the go or just around the house is baby wearing. There's tons of options, right? There's slings, there's carriers, there's, you know, you don't have to get a fancy one, but something I'd recommend just as a mom off the record here, and I'm sure you'll say the same April is start watching those tutorial videos especially for like the baby rap. Yeah, watch them. (laughs) Don't make the mistake I made, which is I was watching a video tutorial when Julian was a few weeks old. Me too. Get one of those cheap baby dolls off of Amazon. Use that as practice. Watch the tutorials now. And I just want to plug again, take a breastfeeding workshop from an IBCLC or meet with an IBCLC We'll talk more about that in a future episode, but Trisha Ludwig mm-hmm. of the Down to Birth podcast, she does offer those workshops. After Eden was born, she had a tongue tie. And so we had a little bit of trouble with the latch in the early days. And I had a Zoom meeting with her and she helped. It was amazing. And your notes from that too. We have one more question from one of our followers, which Ooh. I can't believe we didn't get this. <laughs> how do couples that co-sleep, and I think she means bed share. Yes. How do couples that bed share have intimate moments? Asking Ooh, I love friends. this. I love this question. Okay. Do you, why don't you go first and then I'll share my two cents. <laughs> well, <laughs> we aren't. <laughs> Exactly. So uh, I can't really speak to that, but I have seen other folks on that uh, Facebook group I mentioned talk about creative ways. And really it just means getting out of bed or getting out of the time that you're generally doing it, which is probably when baby's going to sleep. Also during nap times, I would imagine would be great. But like I said, I have not ventured into that realm yet. Yeah. You know, (laughs) We have um, maybe maybe once or t- twice briefly. I know that's TMI. I really hope um, you know close families this <laughs> portion right now. Just plug your ears, but I'll spare you the details. But but here's the thing: you're absolutely right. You you get creative. I think about this. This I I would pose this question too. When you have a small living space, let's say you live you know in a tiny apartment, right, and you have a ton of kids, don't you always wonder like how did the parents find the time and privacy and space to do it to have all those kids. Well, the truth is it just takes a couple minutes. Okay. And there's the bathroom. There's the living room. Sorry. TMI again. Where there's a will, there's a way, as my mama would say. So exactly. So you, you get creative, but I'm also, I also want to say this before I even got pregnant years ago and I heard about people who bed share or whatever. Um, I, I was so judgmental and I was like, 
first of all. Like the bed is for a couple and little kids shouldn't be there. And and I was like, that's going to ruin a marriage. But I have to say this, our marriage is great and thriving. And I actually asked Eric, I was like, so I don't know, like, do you want Julian to like be in his own sleeping space soon? Like, is this working okay for you? And he loves it. I I was actually a little surprised because I didn't know if he was just doing it for me, like to make me happy. But he was like, he was like, no, it's so cute and cozy. And I agree. And again, you sleep better. But hey, mamas who don't have babies yet, we're going to let you in on a little secret. I know that maybe your sex drive is really high during pregnancy with all the hormones, but let me tell you, it's not so high in those immediate months postpartum. And that is normal. That's normal. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. It's a blip in time. You know, that's not really at the top of my priority list, especially if you know you're going to be with this person the rest of your life. It's like, okay, so you are not as intimate, you know, in that literal way mm-hmm. right now. But I want to say this to April. Would you agree that there's other types of intimacy, just like cuddling, holding hands, watching an episode of Yellowstone? Even just like both when it's bedtime, both of our hands on Eden to me feels like a very intimate moment because it's like we're both sharing that same feeling yeah. of connection with her. So I I think it's, yeah, I think that's a beautiful point to make is that intimacy look different than just sex. Yes. Yes. And it doesn't have to be so blatant, so black and white, right? And you will Mm -hmm. get back there, but you don't have to be in a rush, right? And yeah. Yeah. And if if you've got an older baby, grab a babysitter. Have grandma come over. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. From what I've been told, and I think this makes a lot of sense, is when especially if you're exclusively breastfeeding, when your baby's a little bit older and your baby can be separated from you for longer chunks of time and your baby's out of the house with a caregiver, it's a lot easier to let your guard down and relax knowing you have the home to yourself. There's nothing like hearing your baby fart, let's say, or cry. That's oh gonna my be God, a it's never not funny. It's never not funny every single time. And she does it like a, an old man. <laughs> yeah, so it's like when you're trying to be intimate and you hear that, it's like, you know, so just just wait. And again, it's like with graduating your baby to a crib, you don't have to rush it. Yeah, let's not let's not try to enforce independence on a creature that is the most dependent of all of its species. Exactly. Yes. So that's a wrap for episode four on safe infant sleep and the predatory industry of the sleepers. Tune into next episode. So if we thought this one was triggering, the next one might be even more so, but also equally informative, we hope. We're going to get into a lot of the science behind the childhood vaccine schedule, and we'll be talking about pros and cons for each of those. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. And if you're enjoying our podcast and you're finding it informative, we would ask that you kindly leave us a review, perhaps rate us five stars. That way we can boost our channel and make sure that moms across the globe can get access to this information to help them feel empowered, to lean into their intuition, just like us. Thank you, mamas. Bye.